This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series discussing Michelangelo Mato's book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, but check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan return to The Underground is Massive to discuss developments in New York City and the East Coast in 1992. Email us at podcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say, techno roll. That's right, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again I'm joined by Ryan Hartness to continue our discussion of The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by Michelangelo Matos. And today we're going to be talking about Chapter 6, Storm Rave, Staten Island, New York, December 12th, 1992. Ryan, are you ready for December 1992? I'm very ready. I always love the New York chapter. It's always, uh, you know, it's the most fascinating one for me because there's such a mythos around New York and, and its place in the rave scene. So it's always fun to kind of get into it. Indeed, indeed. And this, these were heady times in New York. There was a lot going on, and we're going to try to cover as much as Matos covered anyway. And he opens the chapter with a quote from Moby, who once again gets another cameo mention in a chapter, but hasn't really been the center of any lengthy narrative at all. But he opens this quote with, personally, I'd like to see all this talk of past raves and old records put aside, because what we should be about is the future and forward thinking. Once the glorification of the old replaces the celebration of the new, we might as well all pack it in and go to a Beach Boys concert. Oof. What do you make of that? Why do you start the chapter with that quote? Uh, you know, maybe it has something to do with uh, kind of uh, raves leaving its disco roots behind and going fully futuristic. Maybe that's kind of an element of what he was talking about. Or maybe he was just talking about the fact that everybody was imitating, uh, you know, the Detroit sound for so long. 
and it was time to like move forward and, and get something fresh, which is, you know, a, an ironic thing for him to be saying just when he's kind of, uh, riding that rave of, of old school rave. Riding that wave of old school rave. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was fascinating to me and it really put into, into, uh, focus for me, the way that, that the, people involved in making this music saw themselves at the time as blazing a path into the future, which is something that I don't think uh, happens anymore. So kind of an interesting period. But we start out... Yeah, just just uh, just basically, if you're copying music from 1988 and 1992, you're already like, you're already betraying the, the futuristic slant of this music. Yeah, good point, good point. Which was kind of going on because of the whole lag of it catching on in England a little later, and then they had to digest a whole bunch of music out of Chicago and Detroit from the 80s in the late 80s and early 90s. But let's get back to Frankie Bones. He's the guy who ran the Storm Raves. Uh, we've met him in a previous chapter, and uh, they're in full effect here. He'd opened a record store and been to England and kind of brought back the rave ethos to New York. But now he's he's just going, running and gunning. He's got three partners, Dave Lights, Joey Fax and Mr. Hyde. I like that Mr. Hyde, who's the guy who's connected to the local families in the area so that it can help them sort out uh, confusions and complications that might arise in the New York, greater New York City area. Yeah, and but, you're going to be hearing this as a regular trend is that, uh, you know, there are mafia mafia elements in New York that cannot be ignored. Uh, and, and when they end up kind of coming to the forefront, it's with a violent end, so... Yep, yep. The things can get a little out of control uh, if you don't if you don't you know pay your vig and and whatnot. But they're they're looking for places to have raves, out of the way places. The quote was, "If it looked like something we could rent, we'd rent it. If we could break into something, we'd break in." They'd frequently chop locks off of abandoned looking buildings, replace it with their own lock, and if they came back in two weeks and nobody had interfered with their new lock, they felt like they had. Uh, a, a green go signal to, to go ahead and set up the venue and hold a rave there. <clears throat> the first renegade party in New York City was, quote, deliberately small scale, just 50 people in a gutted out apartment on Coney Island Avenue. But by 1991, they're having generator parties in junkyards, uh, bringing 400 people out to the freight tracks. Uh, winter 92 in Staten Island, they get 1,500 people. Fall 92, they've got 5,000 people on Maspeth Avenue. So, yeah. The, the scene is growing. I would love to have been uh, at one of these storm raves had I been hip enough and in the city enough. Yeah, and Frankie Bones had an intimate knowledge of the train system from his days, like running around doing graffiti and stuff. So he knew the literal ins and outs of the city and like all the forgotten nooks that appear once a highway or a tunnel reroute society, like completely away in a new direction. So I feel like this chapter has a whole bunch of really fun illegal rave how-tos that are kind of like, just scattered through like that cutting the the padlock off and putting your own there that's mwah, i wish i had thought of that back in the day <laughs> and then like it goes into all the unique venues that they were they were taking over and using like warehouse parties almost seem boring compared to to you know the events they're talking about now that are being held in like abandoned bus depots or horse stables or diners and punk flop houses so it's like this this is to me rave has always been about events in unique spaces like I, I find if it's at a club then it's a club like even after hours it's still a club so i really liked that the storm raves were in a bunch of really strange spots they just they just set up shop and 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 do whatever they wanted to do at them that's the that's that to me is pure rave baby yeah it's it's an era that's pretty easy to mythologize because it's it's 
very glamorous sounding at least to read about it and to listen to the to the recordings of the live sets and what little video there is is all very uh, compelling stuff it's also a period when the music is evolving quickly um that uh, as mato says that um the storm crew were evangelists for quote the new style that moved away from freestyle and house and so house obviously is the dance style from chicago we've talked about many times and freestyle is more the latin inflected hip-hop that was uh big in new york through the 80s. And it's also a time when the rave scene and the club scene are starting to bifurcate and house is setting up shop in the clubs. It's for more mature dancers, older folks who have jobs and, and whatnot and more and are looking to mate rather than just kids looking to get out of their mind and go crazy. So that uh, hardcore stuff is coming into the music and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But there's um, one example he gives is a club called The Building that only played industrial and new wave, but then suddenly they started mixing in T99 or House of God by DHS. And it was, and there's a quote from somebody who was there at the time, and it was just so much stronger than other music. It's not that it was better. It was just so much different that everybody knew something new was happening. Must have been exciting. Once again, we're getting a, a shout out to the industrial clubs that were the early purveyors of techno music, showing white people, white, white teenage kids who can't dance the way. Yes. Pointing the way, and 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 um, yeah, I think it, it was a key link in the chain. Uh, new wave, also uh, synth pop, a big factor in that evolution as well. And we get back to the internet listservs, the any raves, which is a branch of the various rave lists that were set up originally in San Francisco, is um, connecting the whole East Coast. They've got the hookup omatic, which is a rideshare program, informal rideshare program they set up on the mailing list, uh, connecting kids. Uh, taking them to raves in D.C., Philly, New York City, Hoboken, Boston, Grafton, Massachusetts, New Haven, Pittsburgh, Providence, Cambridge, Southern Maine, College Park, Maryland, University of Delaware. So it's this big interconnected but still underground scene. Yeah, it's it's. I think we mentioned this in the last episode uh, when we were talking about Midwest and how the Midwest scene was was basically a 15-hour radius around Chicago and anybody in that, uh, there'd be cars all the time going back and forth. And, and you know, New England uh, was was a paradise by comparison because you had cities two hours apart. And there were there were there was enough like rail and train and stuff like that, that it was easier to get back and forth. But, uh, yeah, the amount of ride sharing and the amount of friends made on these ride shares, the amount of community that was built from, you know, people all the way down the coast coming all the way up to New York and beyond. Uh, it's, it's hard to understate the importance of that kind of stuff. And again, uh, how the internet really, really kind of helped rave cement itself and, and turn into a bit of a force. And let's hear our first song. This is DHS, the house of God, the original Italian remix from 1991. <laughs> That was the House of God by DHS, the original Italian remix. Why'd you pick this one? 
Uh, just it was mentioned in the book. So and it also showed up. Uh, Michelangelo Matos, the author of this book, is also kind of being tagging along with us on Twitter, uh, mentioning some uh, extra little bits and pieces about each chapter along with this, which is fun. And one thing that he introduced me to is he has a chapter by chapter breakdown of all the music on Spotify. So I went through that Spotify list for this episode. Most of the choices out of there were, were from this, including House of God, the original Italian remix. I love that. And uh, and yeah, so that's that's where that came from. Yeah, and I highly recommend the Spotify playlist and also the mixography in the book. Uh, some great set lists here. There's a Groove Rider set from uh, 1991. That's just crazy. Groove Rider never shuts up through the whole thing. <laughs> it's like he's got vocal Tourette's. Uh, uh, it's really good. It gives you a feel for how the DJs were making this music come to life at the time. And then he goes into, you know, after he introduces the whole East Coast concept that there are multiple cities and multiple scenes going on he kind of dives into some of the specific ones talks about dc where fernando and jorge baez uh, were the first promoters doing raves there in dc as catastrophic productions their first party was called the rave appropriately enough and by late 1991 they're bringing in about 2,000 people per show you also had baltimore real close to dc i had ultra world and Lonnie Fisher doing promos. And then you have the Philadelphia scene, and a guy named Josh Wink uh, is kind of the the dominant figure in the Philly scene. And, and he's mentioned Josh in a couple of previous chapters, but this one he gives his life stories. And this was interesting. Josh Wink got started early. Like he's first a bar back at Captain Jack's mobile DJ company in 1983 at age 13. Uh, by 86, no, it, uh, sorry, he's an apprentice at Captain Jack's. Then by 86, he's a bar back at age 16, moves up to DJ. Then he gets a residency after hours at the Black Banana, the evocative name there. And then Acid House Wednesdays, 1988, at the bank. Um, and he says, that's the kind of music that made me want to produce. And Josh Wink, probably best known as a producer rather than a DJ. By fall of 89, he's uh, partnered with Blake Tart and rented a punk squat. And through Philly's first warehouse rave, which drew 800 people, by 1990, um, Wink and Britt have sold their first track, E-Culture's tribal confusion um to strictly rhythm in new york city and did i get his name wrong because the autocorrect might have changed um, i feel Brit like blake tart, tart is probably i feel like blake tart is wrong i imagine yeah, it's, it's probably Brit, Brit something maybe because Bl- both both parts of blake tart sound wrong <laughs> i know that name is just too good to be true hey, if there's one mistake per episode i'm glad this is yours <laughs> well thank you thank you i'm happy to happy to fill that important role but as you said uh it's um, their evolution into producers, that's that's the important thing here. And um, then they're also Vagabond, which is a roving occasional Monday party that they run from 91 to 92, uh, playing venues like the Natural Science and History Museum, the Silk City Diner. People were dancing on the counters. So this is that classic stuff. And Natural Science and History Museum makes me think about like the Ben Stiller movie where the kids spend the night in the museum. And uh, it sounds like a great deal of fun. Ditto with yeah, and it's just lucky that they had the had access to all these places, because I guess at the time, rave still hadn't been stigmatized to the point where when you go to a museum, uh, you know, they'll still rent to you. And, and that's something that you see kind of on and off throughout is, uh, is, you know, having access in these new regions to these unusual places because nobody knows any better and, and nobody realizes, quote unquote, what's going on. 
Yeah, I mean, that that punk place sounds really cool. The diner sounds neat. And just parties on Monday just tells you how starved people were for this kind of music. Uh, you kind of wonder how you could have kind of an all-night dance party on a Monday. And it's just because the enthusiasm was there because it was new and it was fresh. And if there's one big difference between, say, like 1989 and 2020 is just that nowadays – there's so much more electronic dance music everywhere all the time that it's hard to get people excited like they were back then. So you really got to put yourself in the headspace of this being such fresh new stuff. And, and every time it comes to a new scene, uh, to a new place, the people that are coming out are just blown away by the fact that not only is this exciting cutting edge music, but it feels like it's a scene that's dropping the boundaries that have existed in society between genders and between uh, sexual orientation, between social standing, uh, money and everything else like that. There was a real utopian vibe that was going on uh, in, in all of these scenes. And guys like Josh Wink that kind of came in early saw the existing bar structure and how how nightlife ran and said this is disgusting and i don't like it and wanted to throw his own parties with no alcohol i uh, i can really respect that because i got into throwing raves because you know the meat market and 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 just the alcohol focused night out was just not for me and i never figured out where i fit in until i got into the rave scene and it's good that you found a home and it turns out that blake tart is the guy's name and King Brit was a different person that Josh Wink met at a record store, and they're the ones who produced records together. Blake Tart was his promo partner, so Blake Tart, actual real name. So well, now that that makes that now it's on me. Now it's yeah. now it's back on me. That's now good. it's back on you. You come to the king. You come at the king. You got to come correct, Ryan. So lesson learned, <laughs> I hope. And then he talks about Pittsburgh, uh, and a guy uh, Joel Bekov, Bevacqua. Do you have a uh, Bevacqua? Bivacqua, the deadly Buddha, and um, uh, he's he's kind of the king of the scene there, or a player in the scene. Uh, the Slacker Rave, December 13th, 1991, uh, is uh, noted. Uh, DJ Neil Keating, a.k.a. Controlled Weirdness, headlined nearly a thousand people coming out there. They had the record shop, the Turbo Zen, because... Joel uh, needed a record store account to order good records from Watts, which was America's main dance music distributor. So he couldn't just order them as an individual. He had to set up a record shop so he could get the cool records because you could get them only from distributors. They were only wholesale. They weren't available retail. Yeah, and this this is the this is the connective tissue in the scene. It's the neurons grow. Like the music isn't just not available there because this uh, you know uh, the whole backbone for the structure of techno kind of arriving in in New England being created in this chapter. Yeah, the the connections being made, and then at the at the Power Rave, November thirteenth, nineteen ninety two, in Pittsburgh, Richie Houghton and Adam X were featured, and this was promoted via the Any Raves list plus flyers. And correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Bivacqua and Richie Houghton end up having a partnership, right? Like a record label together? No, that's John no. Aquaviva. He's he's ah, a different guy. Yeah, right. yeah. Let's see, see now now I've made the mistake and you caught me. Thank you for correcting that. Very, these names, these names, they're crazy. Yeah. And then um, – back Before we move on, uh, there's uh, Baltimore, Lonnie Fisher from Baltimore. He's actually – like a lot of these guys, obviously, uh, Josh Wink's still around. Lonnie Fisher from Baltimore is still around. He actually works for Insomniac now. They do the Electric Daisy Carnival event uh, along with like a bunch of other massive events. But so many of these names, these guys like stuck around. Like Lonnie Fisher was running uh, the Sonar Club in Baltimore for for like over a decade. And uh, so it's guys like this that, that really carried the torch. And it's very impressive when you see somebody that started in 1989 that's still going in 2020. 
Yeah, it shows if you get in on the bottom floor or something, you've got a long way to grow with with the uh, scene. And then they also talk about Diesel Boy, a.k.a. Damian Higgins, who's another Pittsburgh scenester. He was a Carnegie Mellon student, great university there. He was converted to rave at a Front 242 show, once again, the Industrial Connection, when the DJ played Anastasia by T99 out of Belgium. Then he started DJing on college radio, initially just playing that one record because he was so excited he had tracked it down. And then pretty soon he's selling mixtapes via the email list and sets up a Sunday residency at the Metropole. And he's drawn uh, initially about 200 people. By the end of the year, about 1,500 people. Meanwhile, um, what Steph tells me it's time to cue. Before we get to our meanwhile, let's hear Adam X, Lost in Hell. Adam X lost in hell from 1992. And why'd you pick this one? And don't say it was because Matos mentioned it in the chapter. You got to tell us why did he mention it? I mean, I mean, he does, he does, but Adam X being uh, Frankie Bowen's brother and being one of the key storm rave DJs, this was a, the perfect example of kind of a storm rave sound where they're taking that, that kind of hard edged uh, German trance slash techno sound and, and repurposing it for their, for their grimy New York rave. So I thought that was a, and, and when you hear it, you're going to say, yeah, it sounds, it sounds a lot like that classic Hoover track. And that's because it is, it got like recycled through several times from the original Joy Beltram version, goes back over to Europe and gets remixed and then comes back to New York and he remixes the remix of the remix. So, you know, just that standard story of, uh, of, of that one popular sound getting redone over and over again, because it's caught on. Yeah, and uh, and this is as I mentioned, this is a time when the music was evolving very quickly. Uh, he mentions that hardcore, which is a new sound evolving out of acid house, had germinated at the London Club Rage, where residents resident DJs Fabio and Groove Rider were playing breakbeat records at 45 p.m. instead of 45 RPM instead of 33 RPM. So they're they're putting the pitch way up and playing them fast, and then gradually people start producing records to fit their sound. And um, the system wrecking sub bass is a, is a key mark. Uh, shut up and play, or shut, sorry, shut, shut up and dance. PJ and Smiley, AKA Philip Johnson and Carlton Hyman are key producers in this era doing the breakbeat sounds. And Pro Tools is the new shit um, that everybody wants, everybody's using at this point used to make tracks by 1992. It's one-tenth the cost of the Fairlight sampler that had been uh, kind of the state-of-the-art sampler in the 80s, the kind of thing that Peter Gabriel, Depression Mode, has had used. It's now been replaced by Pro Tools. So exciting era and interesting to get uh, a different take on it. We obviously talked about the evolution of this stuff a lot with Simon Reynolds. And again, Reynolds focused just on the producers, and I feel like he left the DJs out of the story a little bit. And when you, especially going back and listening to sets by Fabio or Groove Rider from this time, you can really hear how they were create, playing a big part in creating the music. I don't want to say the producers didn't play a big part too, but the DJs are definitely key collaborators in this process. Yeah. And this whole part, 
you know, I feel like it's not explicitly laid out, but this is kind of uh, this is the tale of of UK like uh, hardcore rave or uh, hardcore breakbeat turning into jungle, and they kind of bring up Diesel Boy, Damien Higgins in the US, and Diesel Boy's tale is basically the US view of what's going on in the UK as hardcore breakbeat turns into jungle, and while all the evolution happens in the uk you had guys like diesel boy following along with that evolution and representing the music in the us and that's that's very important there's a there's a like a long-held snobbery in the uk drum and bass scene about the us guys uh because you know they they rightfully claim that they created jungle and and carried it but it was guys like diesel boy that carried the sound in north america despite getting cold shouldered completely by the uk guys so i'm kind of glad that you know diesel boy gets gets mentioned and and brought up with it and then they have to kind of explain where this is coming from in the uk just so that you can kind of follow along and say okay this is where hardcore breakbeat happened and how it splits into the hardcore that we talked to a little bit later with with lenny d but there's you know, it splits off into jungle with guys like Diesel Boy as well, and that's getting its due in America as well. Yeah, and this is a period of time when the center of gravity of the scene, first the audience and then the production of the music, has moved from the American Midwest, starting in Chicago and Detroit, and then migrates over to England. And at this point, the American scene is kind of reacting to what's happening in Europe, although people like Joey Beltram and Lenny D and others are having a massive impact on the European scene. So I, I definitely don't think you could say that, you know, the states were irrelevant to the development of the music at this time. I mean, and jungle guys from, will, jungle guys will argue that it, that it very much was. And there's, you ooh, know, those jungle guys. I, and, and I don't know if it's just because none of the U S produced jungle got played in the UK due to that, due to that big wall, uh, or whether or not there was actually like a complete lack of jungle production. But, uh, yeah, as far as, as far as that, that goes, uh, like, I agree. There's definitely people in New York and the Midwest and everything else like that producing to a lesser degree than there was in Europe. But when, when it comes to jungle, there was a, uh, it, it's still a, a pretty well, well, well held position that, uh, nothing of value was done in North America until like the year 2000 is, like, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty. And again, I'm just representing the views. I'm letting you guys know what the, uh, the attitudes are. I will not speak for this. Uh, we're simply I, attempting to describe consensus reality here. People We're not, we're not making an aesthetic case of our own. Is that fair enough? Yeah, exactly. All right. So, but there are, uh, a, a core of DJs and producers at the center of the New York scene, 10 to 30 people making music and releasing records um, that are having a big impact on the global electronic dance music scene. There was one studio because not everyone could afford this stuff. So people are kind of pooling their resources. Some key players are John Selway and Oliver Chesler, who is who are students at uh, SUNY Purchase, which is S State University of New York, um, and that's one of the campuses. They played their track Schizophrenic at school. Uh, it was released as attributed to Disintegrator and released on Direct Drive, Jimmy Crash's label, and they got great grades for that. So it sort of reminds me of Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys turning in his first surf song, although I think he got an F. So these guys at least got a good reception. Um, Moby's Go was the biggest hit coming out of the scene, but once again, kind of a little backhanded compliment there because that's about all he has to say about Bo Moby other than the quote at the beginning of the chapter. And then he sinks into Joey Beltram, who he calls by far the most musically important producer. And of course, Simon Reynolds named his book after one of Beltram's songs. So that seems to be the consensus. 
His volume one EP from 1990 has the track Energy Energy Flash, which was the name of Reynolds' book. Uh, and Matos calls it maybe Techno's greatest single ever. Then Mentasm in 1991, even more important, its second phase, which is Beltram uh, partnering with Mundo Music, a.k.a. Mike Mundo. And Matos calls it his most impactful track. And impactful for such a good writer. It pains me that Matos used impactful, although... I would say influential. I don't know why that word bothers me so much, but I hate the word impactful. Um, but it yeah, does. It, it brings out that Hoover track that we just heard in that uh, in that earlier song by Adam X, and the Hoover dominated uh, hard techno for, for and, and bled into trance for like a long time. And even now, the Hoover is still one of those classic sounds that you can bring back as a sample, and it will immediately tingle everybody's memories. And he says that forced the genre to reckon with it for a good 18 months. So according to Matos, it was an 18-month run of the Hoover sound being the, the cool, hot sound. And ironically, you say Tingle. There was another track, Tingler, by Smart Systems, uh, uh, that that totally swiped um, the Mintasm thing. And I liked how he also calls he, – he says Future Systems evolves into Future Sounds of London or was a nom de – record for future sounds of london's matos calls them snooze balls and he why, why, did, why does he drop that little bomb there uh you know i mean i think future sound of london is one of those groups that that came out to huge fanfare they're one of those one those big signees that was supposed to change the face of music and the fact that they didn't uh you know they get a little bit of short shrift i i've already defended uh the life forms album uh and i will continue I to yeah, and uh, you know, obviously, we have explosives. is uh, is another weird, weird goodie. I th I like Future Sound of London. And I don't understand why they why they get so much crap. It's I think they just kind of appeared and then they disappeared. And I guess it's a little bit of uh, you know, it's like a like a hot uh, sports prospect that has one good season and then blows like both their knees out. And the and the people that invested money are still complaining about it. But let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll talk about Adam X and Lenny D. And so Adam X's track Lost in Hell is exactly what you were talking about earlier. It it samples Tingler, which was emulating the sound, the Hoover sound for Mintasm. So it's this it's this tennis game uh, volleying back and, and steal alike. Steal and steal alike, indeed. It's just it's the nature of human beings. Monkey here, monkey play. Um, and then Lenny D uh, is is another producer he's quote on the pursuit of making it harder and more 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 he was tired of boring disco crap and house music by 1990 and he was said uh, techno is what we're doing and fucking right it is another level it made sense that i confused this music with metal and punk and the next thing you know i discovered the netherlands netherlands and belgium and germany so he heard um tracks like we have arrived by musculinium united aka mark acartapane or Tranier. Um, so apologies for the mispronunciation again. And he says, this is it. This is the future. And he puts out records. Uh, Lenny D puts out records like We Have Arrived, uh, backed with Night Flight, Nonstop to Chaos by the Mover on his own industrial strength records label. And this segue, this seems right in with uh, the emergent Gabba scene in Holland. And he says, it's a definitive middle finger to house music's vanguard. They weren't into it, man. All of a sudden, there's another kind of music that's not ripping off disco. This is our thing. These are our sounds. These are our influences. So it's fascinating to me. And again, I'm kicking myself for having been oblivious to this. I would have loved this stuff had I known it was going on at the time. Um, it's heavy and hard. And if you're, if you're a, 
uh, a rocker boy like myself, it's catnip. Yeah, and Lenny D kind of started out. Uh, he was he was a production force, like basically from the start. He was working in uh, in in proper studios, doing a lot of the grunt work on uh, on production uh, work. So he came in with uh, with a, a wealth of knowledge. And him and Frankie Bones teamed up and made the Bones Breaks records, which were massive hits in the UK. It was uh, a lot of uh, like when we were talking about tracks and songs, they were making tracks for DJs and sending them over to the UK, where they were selling thousands and thousands of copies. So him and Bones were the ones that were getting booked and brought over to the UK and then into Europe. They were some of the first international DJs coming into Europe as well. And they started kind of acting as, uh, as, uh, Sherpas for the scene. They would bring, they would bring their friends and other people over, over with them to see what this is like. And these people would come back changed, not unlike the, the, the famous Trevor Fung and, and Paul Oakenfold go to Ibiza and come back uh, and and all of a sudden they're they're evangelists as well so Lenny D was one of those key guys that was always bringing people across and then bringing artists back Mark Mark Acardipane uh is just one example of 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 a massive act that he kind of created by signing them to industrial strength and pushing that sound and, and really kind of kicking off the entire like proper hardcore gabber uh scene and now that we can look back in retrospect, since the Cold War has reemerged, this was going on in an era of cheap fuel, uh, pretty chill global political scene, actually a very exciting global political scene because the Berlin Wall had fell, uh, China was being threatened by the Tiananmen Square uprisings, and uh, there was just this ferment in the air, and it, it really felt like a sense of relief and freedom. And so kids were just flying back and forth across the Atlantic playing records and DJing and, and, you know, cross-pollinating and, and making this a truly international culture that was emerging together. But then he brings us back to the New York house scene. And this is something that I think Matos does a better job of than Reynolds. Reynolds kind of drops the ball on house because he's just not into it until he has to bring it back in when two-step becomes a big thing in, in the end of the 90s. But um, Matos gives us a little aside to tell us what's going on in the house scene and that it's evolved to be a whole lot smoother than, quote, rough and ready Todd Terry, who had been the hip house king around the turn of the decade. Uh, the Quad Studio was a state-of-the-art studios. And Frankie Knuckles, who we've been following since the early 70s when he was playing bathhouses in New York, then moves to Chicago at the warehouse and you know names the music or becomes the reason the music is named house music. But he and David Morales have this working partnership. And um, as David Morales says, if we weren't mixing records together, then I was programming drums on his records. Frankie always took care of the orchestration. I took care of the groove. We were the house version of Gamble and Huff. And Gamble and Huff are the great disco producers of the 70s out of Philly. Morales had been a resident DJ at Brooklyn's Ozone Layer. Then he subbed in for Larry LeVan, who had been Frankie Knuckles' kind of musical big brother uh, at, at the bathhouse. I'm blanking on the name of the bathhouse. It starts with the C. Continental bathhouses, I think. But uh, Levan oh, yeah, had, that's it. Yeah, Levan had gotten famous at the Paradise Garage, and so Morales was a, a substitute DJ for him there. Then he moved to Zanzibar, New Jersey, and plays alongside the great Tony Humphreys. Tony Humphreys is the guy who kind of formulated the Garage sound, which is named for the Paradise Garage uh, of Larry Levan. But when Levan was there in the '80s, it was not what we think of as Garage now. It was it had not been codified. It was much more of kind of a wide-ranging sound that had a lot of electro, a lot of no wave type stuff like ESG and and Levan's own groups. Um, I think Peaches was one of those groups. So 
anyway, Morales has the pedigree, well, pretty much as good a pedigree as Frankie Knuckles, I would say, without being um, have, without having launched House on his own. Yeah, basically but, one one generation past Frankie Knuckles and working with Frankie Knuckles. Like it doesn't get much better than than working with the Godfather and then coming into your own and basically carrying House on your back for two decades. Yeah, so uh, David Morales, big doings, I would say. But as Def Mix Productions, Knuckles and Morales changed the face of remixing. They weren't just taking the elements that were already in the track. I mean, it was one thing, you know, the original remixes were just done with records. What you could do with the vinyl, extending breaks, looping choruses over and over again. Then eventually, you know, people got started getting the full 16-track uh, recording so that they could play with the elements on the record as much as in isolation as they wanted to. These guys are actually doing overdubs, bringing in new musicians, completely reworking the tracks. Everything is is up for grabs. And they're working with the biggest of the big. They're working with names like Luther Andros and Michael Jackson. Uh, my, Mariah Carey actually re-recorded her vocals for Morales' 1993 remix of Dream Lover. Um, they got an $80,000 fee to remix Michael Jackson's Scream in 1995. So... Um, and the, that, that remix was not good, by the way. Well. <laughs> a, lot of, a, a lot of these remixes, I don't know if it's maybe it's just my ear from the future going back and, and poo-pooing it. But uh, some of these some of these remixes, uh, the, the highly touted mainstream remixes, were not good just because the tracks were not, uh, not very uh, – they were a little bit resistant to a dance music take. Let's just say that. I see. I see. Well, next you'll be telling me Michael overpaid for Bubbles the Chimp because – 80,000 uh, for a remix that's not good. Ouch. That's that's a lot of money to pay for a remix. That, Especially, and I guess that's what, yeah, 1995, $80,000. Yeah, good. so that's a couple hundred thousand dollars in today's money. Um, it might be like half a million in today's money. Inflation's going right now. Um, but there's also this, there's still a relationship of house to techno and hardcore. Like, um, uh, Frankie Knuckles, when he's playing live sets, and Morales too, they're playing things like Prodigy's tracks. They're playing uh, Oh Fortuna, uh, which is a, a big Belgian hardcore track mixed in. They're mixing it in with the New York City early 90s club set. But House is getting slower and more song-oriented in reaction against the new sounds, against the hardcore that's coming out um, in England and Belgium. And let's go ahead and hear our next track because it is about that time. And the next track we've got picked out is Hard Drive, Deep Inside from 1993. Deep Inside by Hard Drive from 1993. Why'd you pick this one? No, it's perfect timing because we're talking about that kind of rift between the uh, the rave and club scenes growing, but some of the music still crossing over. And uh, Deep Inside is masters at work uh, and and their, their best crossover hit that still kind of got played in rave and in club. Because there's, I, I understand why, why, why club kind of pulled back and, and stuck to house while rave was getting harder and harder because you can kind of pull off 
rave at rave, but rave at clubs, not not so much. And it's kind of the same thing. There, if you tried to play some David Morales style house at a rave, it's not going to go over too well, except for specific kinds of bumpier, funkier house. And this deep inside track it shows you the kind of house sound that you could kind of get away with at a rave. So I thought it was a a, a good choice to, uh, for this moment. And I have to concur. And yeah, like you said, uh, Masters at Work, uh, that's Little Louis Vega and Kenny Dope Gonzalez were the principal New York house producers of the 90s. Um, and like you said, they were able to traverse both sides, house and rave, and Deep Inside was their big crossover hit. Uh, and at the same time in New York, you, you're getting super clubs that are competing with these raves that are happening in the warehouses and stuff. You've got clubs like Twilo and Tunnel that are that are super clubs, big, big venues, but more, again, an older crowd, more sexually mature crowd looking to court and show off and, you know, be sophisticated and cool. It's not the kind of crowd that wants to get X'd up and go out of their heads, listen to a bunch of 160 beats per minute, the kind of craziness. Um, and there's also a backlash brewing and there's a club body and soul that kind of epitomizes this backlash. Francois Kevorkian, who's somebody we talked about a lot and the Brewster and Broughton uh, first series of Techno Roll, um, one of the great original d disco DJs. He and a guy named Joe Clausell and Danny Crivet um, formed this club, Body and Soul. And they're trying to self-consciously keep the dis disco ethos of the Paradise Garage or David Mancuso's loft alive in the 90s. And so if they do play techno, they slow it way down. And there's a great story. Uh, I think it's Clausell that was what was talking about how he had tracks that he would play at 33. And and somebody would say, you're losing all the energy. And he's like, man, you're losing all the soul when you play it at 45. So they're trying to keep the soul of house music alive. Yeah, I love that because there's uh, there's a new genre called drag, which is like they'll take a track and they'll they'll slow it down like five hundred percent or even a thousand percent until it until it becomes this strange ethereal sound like what you would imagine. Uh, ha what 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 you imagine you hear after you get hit by a truck and you're just like slowly dying. <laughs> so I, this is just the beginning point of that where you take a techno track and you 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 play it at thirty three instead of forty five and minus eight. I see. I see. Yeah. And so, something like uh, Houston's own DJ Screw was famous for slowing stuff down in the hip hop world in the 90s. And I think is an influence on that scene as well. Um, there's also Limelight, which is um, a deconsecrated church in Midtown, former Episcopal Church, it becomes a super club. It's one of four mega clubs owned by Canadian Peter Gatian. Uh, Gation. Gation, Gation, thank you. He's also got the Palladium, uh, the Club USA, which holds 2,500 people. Tunnel, which we mentioned before, had 5,000 people. Very profitable. He's uh, working with promoters Lord Michael Caruso and Michael Alleg. Is that right, Alleg? Yeah, yeah. All right, Michael Alleg. Uh, featured a lot of techno. They also had the Disco 2000s night on Wednesdays featuring uh, Larry T and Michael Alloc. And this is where the club kids come into the scene. The movie uh, Kids, Harmony Kareen scripted, uh, kind of try to document that scene. Yeah, it's also Party Monster, which is the story of Michael Alloc, because he ends up in a drug-fueled, uh, a drug-addled days, uh, murdering and dismembering one of the club kids over uh, over a fight over drugs. So there's there's a couple of movies about these guys. There's a book called Clubland by Frank Owen that covers the uh, Peter Gation's clubs and the limelight and all the crime that came out of it. Because when and it's it's too bad that 
it doesn't touch on on the rave scene because it's interesting. The limelight gets a, a decent amount of of time in this book, but then you go and you look at Clubland, and and you don't even really get a mention of the rave scene going on in New York at the same time, despite the fact that Lord Michael Caruso ends up almost murdering Frankie Bones in a in kind of a a land allegedly allegedly. Yeah. So, yeah. There's there's a whole bunch of sleazy stuff going on at the limelight, and and I'd say that you know, we always kind of point out that that behind half the names in this book, you'll always see the same kind of dozen people. And once again, Lenny D is involved uh, with Lord Michael Caruso. He brought Caruso over to England with him and got him all loved up and showed him the way. And Caruso came back with an ecstasy hookup and basically ran Future Shock Fridays at the Limelight, which is uh, one of the bigger nights that was bringing a, a real rotation of top techno names into the city and and uh, kind of educating people to the music so he had great music and he had great drugs but it just wasn't enough the guy had to be a, a major scumbag he he came out of uh like basically he was he was mafioso kind of a a, a small time drug dealer in staten island initially and then once he gets in and he starts throwing these raves he brings his gangster buddies in and these are these are the real rough and tumble uh, like guys, the, these are the kind of people that will, will stab you with a fork if, if you annoy them and, <laughs> or, or they'll, they'll beat you to a pulp and just kind of disappear to Miami for a few months until everything blows over. So this is a real bad guys. And there was a real damper on the scene on account of it. Like, I can't think of like a, a bigger virus in the scene than, than Lord Michael. And it's, uh, and, and so you get to see through the limelight uh, the effect of the extreme sketchiness that 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 rave can bring out, and just like New York goes big on everything, it went big on the sketch, and and that sketch was focused on the limelight. And it's funny to me because Club Kids, that aesthetic that they developed. When I went to a few raves in Austin in the late '90s, people were trying to dress up like their perception of what the Club Kids were, had been doing in New York, you know, five years earlier or something. So it's interesting to me that. I initially associated that aesthetic with raves, but it was coming out of a completely opposite scene. I also like the way Matos describes the crowd at Future Shock Fridays, which is macho Italian tough guys from the outer boroughs taking a vacation from punching each other out <laughs> because they're all eat up and 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 enjoying the the rave uh, dance and love ethos. Meanwhile, they're having this kind of feud with the Storm Raves uh, because if Storm Rave plays too close to Manhattan, it'll steal the crowds from Limelight. Um, and so Storm Rave tried to play in Manhattan in July 92, um, and somebody somebody called the police on him. Presumably it was Lord Michael and his crew. They moved to a secret beach near JFK, but the sound system never makes it. So you, know, you end up with DJs playing cassettes in their cars with the doors open. And then at one point, yeah, like you said, Frankie Bones takes a beating that requires 290 stitches to repair. So, and I think that happened in the stairs of his apartment. So that's pretty, pretty nasty stuff. Definitely regrettable. Not something I would care to be any part of. But let's play our final track. This is Mescalinum United. We have arrived from 1991.
And that was We Have Arrived by Mescalinum United, 1991. Why did you pick that one? Well, it's uh, it's the first release on any of these industrial strength records, and it basically sets the tone for for hardcore music moving forward, uh, and and the sound that's taking over the storm raves and 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 raves in general at this time. So we kind of go on into the chapter, and it talks a lot about hardcore being played all night, and this is a good a good kind of audio sample to give you an idea of what people were listening to somehow for twelve hours straight. Yeah, I think, and you can tell they needed a little enhancement to keep up with that kind of uh, tempos and intensity for eight to 12 hours. That's, uh, yeah, that's intense stuff. Um, it talks about the storm rave uh, from September 19th, 1992. They retreat to Queens and play at a truck loading dock and have 5,000 people at a truck loading dock. Um, again, very, I wish they'd been filming these for movies. These are very evocative settings for some dancing drama. And again, like you say, it was an all hardcore set, except for a 6 a.m. hard trance set by Dante of Long Island. And then he gets into talking about trance, which is your particular favorite. He calls it uh, intensely repetitive music, deeply indebted to the Acid House 303. That's the Roland 303, the sort of botched bass synthesizer that uh, became the source of the acid house squelch sound and so trance is kind of bringing that back it was big in 88 i think it was 87 when dj pierre and future uh, dropped that first one but has its big acid house moment in 88 89 and then is having a comeback in the early 90s as part of trance he's also talks about age of loves uh the age of love track he calls it the bellwether track of trance and hard floors Hard Trance Experience EP of 1992 as the key thing. So tell us about trance. What, what's the magic here? Well, I feel like he's kind of setting up. Uh, usually what happens with uh, with Matos's book is at the end of the chapter, like he, he kind of slams elements that are going to be playing a bigger part into the end of the other one. So it's not just a dry segue from one chapter to another. So I think oh, at this point, he's kind of giving us exactly that little bit of foreshadowing, because I think in the next couple of chapters is where trance really takes over, you know, Hard trance experience is a, is like a hard hard trance, yeah. I mean, obviously, and uh, it's definitely 303 backed, and that was kind of hardcore and hard and trance kind of merged together, and there was a lot of really really banging hard stuff that was coming out around 150 beats per minute at this time, and it took a while for something like Age of Love's The Age of Love to 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 show people that that trance could be chiller and more euphoric and more uplifting. It didn't have to, it didn't need the speed and the energy. You could trust the, the melody to, to carry you along and keep you in that trance that, you know, trance is known for. So this is, uh, as I said, I feel like we're going to be going even deeper into it moving forward in the next couple of chapters. But yeah, this is just that little intro to just tell you, we, we established the fact that jungle is now a thing and hardcore and gabber is now happening and just get ready because trance is next. I see. Interesting. And also has a quote kind of tying us back to the past where one of the scenesters and sadly I didn't write down who it was said that he had the exact same vibe as when he saw the bad brains in the basement in DC in the early eighties. So that hardcore punk ethos, uh, is again, you know, that was a big part of the scene in England where lots of people who got into music via the heart, the punk scene and the post punk scene in England were big players in the acid house scene. Again, a lot of the players in this scene had roots in the American hardcore punk experience. Although it's interesting that uh, Brian Bellendorf, the guy, the founder of the Raves lists out west, he was doubting these reports he was hearing of people dancing to music that was pitched at 180 beats per minute. So uh, GABA was too intense to be believed at this point. 
Well, I think it was Moby who released a track called A Thousand that has the Guinness World Record for like the the fastest song ever. But it's just kind of nonsense. It's like, you know, you can have novelty tracks that technically are, you know, this many BPM. But as we've discussed with some uh, Let It Roll listeners, you know, you, you can multiply BPMs however you or divide them and, and get whatever number you want. But this hardcore music really was going 180 beats per minute and people really were keeping up with it you know, uh, chemically enhanced or not. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very intense period for the music. And then he gets to the end of the chapter and finally gets to the chapter, the nominal party of the chapter. This is the December 11th, 1992, the final storm rave, which brought 2,500 people uh, through a two foot snowstorm to a horse stable on Staten Island, St. George, Staten Island. Um, so it's funny uh, to compare it. He compares it explicitly with the raves that were going on in the Midwest because the people in the Midwest were plenty used to dancing in barns by this point. The New Yorkers were a little bit more nonplussed by it. But um, Frankie Bones, show him we can do this, debuts at the show. And um, I think Frankie Bones himself had barely made it back, that he was coming from a gig in Toronto, because of the massive snowstorm, most of the trains were shut down, and he got lucky. He connected to Albany and then jumped on an empty train that he heard was going to New York City and 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 hitched a ride on that empty train from Albany to New York City just in time to make the, the rave at, uh, at the horse stables. Um, and then there was also a caravan of Midwesterners who made it there, Tommy Sunshine, Kurt X., and they had candy flipped, which is new, lingo that's new to me, where they mixed LSD and ecstasy for what I would imagine would be a very intense trip. And if that's not enough, people were passing around pipes of angel dust sprinkled with cocaine. So, woo, a lot of chemicals uh, being mixed willy-nilly here. And um, afterwards, Laura Lagasa, who's a, a player on the Any Raves list, she says, this is my last storm rave, which fittingly, it was the very last storm rave, but she's done with it regardless. But she has two dozen members of the Any Ravers list at her private holiday party in her house, and Damian Higgins DJed. Is this more foreshadowing? Absolutely. This is more of a setup for for kind of the, the community that they're going to be creating there. So, you know, this last storm rave to say that there was mixed reviews would be an understatement to the, uh, you know, you have this idea that you want an out there venue that's cool and interesting. And then you do it in a horse stable and you realize that reality, you know, is reality. And you can't just pretend like there wasn't like, you know, 500 years worth of crap just like uh, punched into the into the dirt of the stable. So not only was there a snowstorm and it was like you know, really cold out there, but everything smelt of, uh, of horse dung. And, uh, you know, half the people from out of town just hated it. And the other half, like uh, Tommy Sunshine, they were high enough to really enjoy it. So it was, it was very much a kind of the New York scene where we, we touched on the fact that things were getting violent. Uh, the mobs were the mobs were really kind of starting to knuckle down and, and cause violence at these events. There was more and more issues with cops and the venues were getting more out there and weird and uh, and things were kind of uh, hitting a point where the, the, the sound systems weren't showing up and the parties weren't as reliable and it's time to kind of pick up and move on to another scene to see another kind of rise and, and dip as we wait for the scene to really explode in the mid-2000s. Yeah, and that's the, the narrative that Matos is, is delivering through the whole book is kind of why did this music that germinated in the United States in the 80s take so long to become a dominant pop form when it became a dominant pop form in Europe and England in 
you know, by 89, definitely by 91, 92, it's not just in the mix, it's dominating the mix. And in the States, uh, you know, we still, we're still having rock and roll grunge is, is reviving rock and roll for the millionth time. Uh, the metal scene is still big. Hip hop, of course, is immense at this time. And so, um, Lots of stuff going on, and there's reasons uh, why the scene was kind of sabotaged from within as well, just because of the nature of the United States and our culture and our nightclub and criminal cultures intersecting. I don't know. Was there ever a chance that, that rave could have been more popular in the States in this period, or was it just strangers of the night? Ah, yeah. I mean, it, there definitely could have been like it also would have taken as a couple of small little nudges this way or that for things to happen earlier. I, you know, I don't think there's a scene that grinds down. It's uh, maybe maybe hardcore punk, maybe the true adherence to the punk ethos. Uh, they grind themselves down pretty hard as well. But, uh, you know, it's every scene. And, and Simon Reynolds discusses this as well. If you'll you'll follow through this like this this time where everything is beautiful and it's utopia and you're so excited at the fact that everybody is getting along and 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 it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what sexual orientation it, it's great and then you know a year or two into it you have people starting to rip each other off to pay for drug debts or just to buy more drugs and then a year or two after that you have uh club promoters murdering their friends and uh chopping up the corpses and throwing them in the river uh, because it's just gotten that dark. And then at that point, you know, like the people, the people who know an expiry date when they see it, you know, are stopped, are no longer, are no longer going to participate in that. And there's the, just that turnover. And I, I think that uh, the dance, dance, dance culture at this time had such a severe level of, of turnover that that was, that was what kind of stopped the momentum every time it started to get going as things got so greasy the cops would step in or or the mafia would step in and it would just get dark that way one way or another. So that was always an, an impediment. Yeah, and that's kind of what happened to the Chicago scene in the late 80s. Uh, regulated on one side by the mayor's office, harassed on the other side by criminal gangs, and then uh, competition on the radio in the form of hip-hop pushing house off the radio. And so that's it for our chapter on Storm Rave. Next week we'll be back to talk about Rave America and we'll be going back out west to Los Angeles, California, also December 1992. So, Ryan, for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox. We've been discussing Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, and we'll be back at it again next week. Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boltfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boltfoot.com. Grown here, sewn here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week, 
Ryan and Nate follow Matos to the West Coast to talk about the rise and fall of indie rave in Los Angeles in 1991 and 1992. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Thank you.